0: In brightest day, in blackest night, all other
1: podcasts tremble in fright.
0: Losers cower before the power. Oranges lust, and blues you can trust. Indigos feel, and white ones heal. Yellow scare, and green ones dare. That Sapphire love, and Black Hand's glove. Your foundation without hesitation. Chad and Mars face evil's mind. Respect their power for they'll make you
1: see the
0: light. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Bokelman. And this is the Lanterncast. Let's talk about Denny O'Neill. In order to do this episode the way I envisioned it, I need to first address the recent passing of comic legend Neil Adams on April 28th, 2022. Neil was, to the surprise of nobody, a comic book legend in his own right not just with the wealth of projects that he worked on, from the obscure to the iconic, but also in the arena of creator rights, as he helped Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster receive pension and constant recognition for their creation of Superman. To speak to my love of a series like the seminal Green Lantern Green Arrow run, and to not first acknowledge effectively half of its creative team, is to do a disservice to the work as a whole. This episode was originally planned a few weeks after Denny's passing on June 11th, 2020, and given its subject matter, I wanted to take time to properly prepare for the way in which I'd structure the episode. However, a global pandemic came in full swing, I was hospitalized for diverticulitis, work from home became the norm, and I suppose my penchant for procrastination expanded tenfold in the time outside of work and or recovery. Months became two years, and unfortunately, in that time, we lost Neil Adams as well. And while I interviewed Neil once at Wizard World Austin Comic Con, and the experience was as intimidating as you'd imagine, mind you, I only spoke to the man once. My respect for Neil Adams' work remains largely unaltered after that one-time conversation. Denny, however, I spoke with on three separate and unique occasions. It's for my personal admiration of the man and his works that I release this episode today, on the two-year anniversary of his passing. Originally, I wanted to construct this episode as a sort of audio documentary about Dennis Joseph O'Neill, but given that the root of the idea was to represent the audio from the conversations the Lantern cast had with Denny over the years, an obvious imitation of a true documentarian attempting to persuade you I had any notion of what I was doing would eventually undercut the purpose of this episode. Which is ironic, because my first interaction with Denny was the result of me trying to persuade DC Comics to let me make a documentary. At some point in 2009, I became consumed with a feeling of injustice on behalf of my favorite franchise, Green Lantern. Specifically, that each new DC multimedia release, seasons of Smallville the DVD, direct-to-DVD animated features, etc., more often than not, came with a special feature detailing the history of some DC character or another being introduced because at the same time my own experience and knowledge of the franchise was on meteoric rise due to my paired fandom of a new podcast called The Lantern Cast. I started reading Green Lantern regularly in late 2008 with the Final Crisis Rage of the Red Lanterns one shot, and my questions on this franchise were endless. But nevertheless they found a home in the feedback emails I sent to Jim Ford and Dan Kurtzky of The Lantern Cast. Wanting a sort of GL-101 digestible info dump, a documentary sprang to mind. So I began campaigning for one. The first person I spoke to on the phone was Dan DeDio, then co-publisher of DC Comics. Dan was polite, but told me that this sort of thing fell more under Warner's umbrella of responsibility. So I reached out to them, and never heard back. But rather than give up, I figured I'd bolster my own position. What if I came at them not just with an idea, but a list of creators who already agreed to be a part of the project? And so, I contacted and got verbal agreements from Judd Winnick, Ron Mars, Neil Adams, and Denny O'Neill. Denny's email response conveyed his curiosity and desire to learn more, and so trusting in me, a stranger, was he that his reply provided me with his home phone number so that we could speak more? And so, one late afternoon, having just parked outside the house of some friends, I stood on the sidewalk across the street, punched the numbers in my cell phone, and called up Denny O'Neill directly. We spoke for maybe 30 minutes at most, though realistically it was probably less. The documentary idea was quickly passed by, and agreed upon, and the conversation spun off into what we each thought about the potential Ryan Reynolds had for the character of Hal Jordan in the upcoming film, as well as Denny's thoughts on how the recently rebooted Star Trek film, now referred to as the Kelvin Timeline, proved we were ready for a Green Lantern film. Our conversation ended quite literally as the sun was setting and I hung up. I stood on the neighborhood sidewalk across the street from the house I was waiting to head into for several minutes. I was early in my informed comic fandom, but I already knew the significance of the name Denny O'Neill, and he was fast becoming a hero. And I just got to have a private one-on-one phone call with the man. Later that same year in early November, Jim and Dan of the Lantern cast brought me onto the show to bring attention to my campaign with their episode number 31. From that appearance forward, my interactions with the Lantern cast and its community grew exponentially, from emailed feedback to increasingly frequent guest hosts to a segment on my own. And then came June 16th, 2011. By this point, the idea of a documentary had faltered. Without Warner's permission, something of this magnitude seemed impossible. And with no personal experience in such a production, I wasn't only disheartened, but felt beyond my depth. And plus, I didn't have the money for such a task. However, I still had my contacts in the industry that I had made, and I wasn't going to let that opportunity pass me by. So on Lantern Cast episode 97, Jim Ford and I released our conversation with Denny O'Neill himself. All right, we're on the phone with uh, Denny O'Neill. Hey, Denny, how's it going? It's fine. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time, and we've, we finally got this all worked out. So for those of you who aren't aware, and if you're not, shame on you, Denny O'Neill was part of the... The team that brought us Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Now, this was is noted for being a very historic run in comics, um, dealing with very uh, a lot of social issues. And uh, I want to know, uh, Denny, how did how did you guys come across tackling these social issues, especially considering uh, the Comics Code Authority and all that was going on back uh, in that time frame?
1: Well, it came about because Julie Schwartz. On one of my weekly visits to DC Comics, said that, um, uh, the Green Lantern was in trouble and they wanted to keep publishing it. So, did I have any ideas? Um, uh, I had, I, I was involved in my personal life with some social issues and had done. A, a story themed on ecology for Julie in Justice League and a kind of anti war story for Dick Giordano back when he was working at Charlton. So, uh, this was not new, but, um, I told Julie that, uh, I might want to try and, and do stories themed on contemporary events. Uh, No idea who the artist was going to be, but I went home and wrote Green Lantern 76, and uh, Julie liked it and commissioned some more, and time passed, and I got a, a proof, and I saw that not only had Neil done it, but he had done, I thought, a superb job, and we were off and running.
0: Now, some, something about these these stories is, and I've I've read this also in in uh, other interviews with you. While you tackled these social issues and brought them to light, you never really offered any solutions
1: for these issues. Well, that would have been really presumptuous. <laughs> uh, no, I I mean, if if I was smart enough to have. Uh, answers to those huge problems I probably wouldn't be a comic book writer <laughs> I'd be a uh, a leader, oh, no I probably wouldn't be a politician though, I don't want to think that low but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah all I thought we might do is call attention to the problems, I, I thought maybe my, it was too late for my generation because uh, we hadn't grown up we were, had been under the Impression that you know once once World War II was won, then it was going to be smooth sailing from then on. It hasn't worked out that way. But uh, I thought for for really bright young people, if they are aware of these problems while they're growing up, their subconscious or whatever, whatever causes people to wrestle with problems might engage this, and they would come up with solutions. So it was a consciousness-raising uh, effort rather than a, uh, a proselytizing. I, I don't think Neil and I are very close on, on a lot of social, political issues, but there's <clears throat> very little in that run that, that both of us couldn't agree on. Now
0: you said you were involved in your own personal life with a lot of these um, social issues, and, and as far as uh, whether it was protests or did you did you view this series as your mouthpiece or or a mouthpiece? No, just- um,
1: we tried to to balance the two characters, one being maybe even further uh, to the left than I was personally. And the other Green Lantern, just like, I thought of him as the best cop who ever lived. But he was kind of obese to authority. He uh, took his orders from really a bunch of uh, distant authority figures, Uh, something I questioned at the time and question even more strongly now uh... But, having said that, he was the best guy of that kind that ever lived uh a totally good guy uh just uh politically quite a bit different than Arrow. Than and the two of them allowed us uh the 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 dramatic dynamic that has now become very commonplace, like in cop movies where uh, you know, there's the fish out of water and the grizzled old timer. Uh, seems to be about half the cop shows I see have, have some of that in it, uh, or in them. So it, it gave us that, and it gave us uh, representatives of two different takes on on contemporary politics. Uh, I was a long, tortured answer. Did I, did I even touch on your question yeah. anywhere in there?
0: Ab- absolutely, Jim. You have any uh, any questions about uh, anything you said?
1: Um, uh, no, I let us let us proceed. Excelsior!
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
2: Do you have more questions on this line, Judd?
0: Yeah. um actually, Denny, I was doing some digging, and I noticed uh, with your degree, uh, specifically from St. Louis University, right? Yeah. Uh, it was centered around like an English-lit creative writing, uh, and this really caught my attention, philosophy.
1: Well, it's, it's not as impressive as it looks, because at that time, it might still be true, every liberal arts major had to take 12 hours of philosophy. Uh, and the requirement for a minor was 15 hours. So if you just added... One elective, and that was pretty much described, which, uh, prescribed which elective it would be, then you had one of your two minors. So it was really the course of least resistance. I don't know (laughs) how much philosophy I learned. It was, uh, it was a Catholic institution, so it was pretty heavily weighted toward, uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I don't know that we ever got uh, until that elective very much into any other philosophers. One teacher decided that the teaching of logic was not worth a whole semester. He could wrap that up in a month, which he did, and then taught us Plato for the rest of the semester, which was interesting. It was the most interesting course, uh, philosophy course I took there. But uh, I kind of had a feeling that I might Enjoy philosophy if I got hold of the right kind. So, uh, Mary Friend and I take a lot of teaching company courses in philosophy now. We just finished one. Uh, in fact, we're in the in the middle of one. Teaching company is a wonderful outfit that will send you for about a hundred bucks a series of lectures uh, from the best teachers you know, around, the best, best teachers available. And if you like to learn, it's fun to know things. That I, I didn't get from my education, but I, I now believe it. It's a good, painless way to, you know, kind of keep learning things without having to travel or take tests or any
3: of that stuff.
1: So that's, uh, I didn't know very much about, I, I can't say I know much about philosophy now, but it is an ongoing interest, and I, I probably know more than when I wrote those stories.
0: Exactly. Uh, it, it's. I ask because for me lately, it's become a personal hobby of reading philosophy and and studying up on it. And it's it's hard not to read your old stories and not think that there was some kind of uh, influence from a philosophy course. But if it was just that, then all right, I, so I guess
1: so I so It talk. was a lot of. Uh Influence like from the Catholic worker, probably. Uh, I married a Catholic worker. Catholic worker was, what, what is, I guess, uh, an organization that operates, uh, out of the Bowery on, on, well, out of the, the ghetto areas of New York. I just realized that the Bowery has become gentrified and, uh, pretty fancy. But, uh, It was run by this incredible woman named Dorothy Day, who did exactly what Christ said people should do, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, and she did all of those things. But she also thought that all war is bad, and that does not allow for any exceptions, so she was... Uh, the the Catholic workers were protesting war during World War II, which I kind of think was maybe a just war, the only one uh, of the last century. But they had had worked out the philosophy in some detail, and when we moved to New York, it was natural that we gravitate to them socially, among other things. But we did believe that the Vietnam War was unjust and a, a very bad idea for the country. And we probably even more strongly believed that uh, racism was uh, something that the country could no longer afford. So I didn't do as much as I now wish I had, but we did associate with those people and we went on some marches and protests and were in a minor way involved in the peace movement. And if anything was influencing us, it uh, it, w- it would have been that more than anything I learned in formal education.
2: Now, now, Denny, when you talk about racism, uh, one of one of the most popular black characters I would say in comics is John Stewart, a character that you, mm-hmm. you yourself created. Now, when you were creating him, like, did you give any thought to the fact that he may end up becoming like? Or, uh, an icon a role model for for people in the future
1: Oh, I don't think we ever thought about that stuff at all. I don't think it would have been too healthy to think about it and Neil had probably as much as i I did to do with creating john i uh I thought probably it was a good idea to have a black superhero or two around as a a a baby step toward eradicating. Uh, the racism that was still, you know, kind of hanging around the media. Uh, there were very little in the way of uh, black performances on television. Even in the movies, they were pretty rare. And the, the history of racism in the movies is, you know, fairly awful. With those uh, poor actors in the, the 30s, 20s and 30s and 40s, Having to do caricatures of themselves just to keep working, uh, I, I think that, that no blame belongs to them at all. I Actually, I don't think. I mean, people did what they knew to do. When I grew up in a, a lower, uh, middle-class blue-collar neighborhood in St. Louis, and we just didn't see black people at all, except if you're driving downtown you might pass through a black neighborhood but it was way off the radar so all oh, i think a lot of people knew was what they learned from the charlie chan movies to cite one example so i mean nobody was to blame and that, that is still having said that it was wrong and it was high time we did something about it so john stewart in addition to the usual uh... Task of trying to create an interesting superhero was a step toward uh, diversification. Uh, let's get a black. We have the, the opportunity to put a black character into the mix. Uh, let's do it.
2: Now, now to follow up with that question, you you took John Stewart and you you know you introduced him. You gave him a great start, and then. Within ten years or so, he played a, a large part in a, a future storyline, in which case he was responsible for the destruction of a planet. Now, I mean, aside from Shame racial, on him. aside from the racial stereotypes, I, I, what's it like to uh, to see a character that you create like used like that?
1: Oh, I I go way out of my way not to see characters I create. Uh as done by other people. Uh, after I had been doing Daredevil for about six months, I was in the habit of, of um, you know, having meals with Frank Miller fairly often. And he said that uh, he was going to have to quit reading Daredevil or quit having dinner with me because I was getting it so wrong. <laughs> and I thought I was pretty much doing his take on it. But uh, as the, what he said was partially in jest. But point well taken, um, it's always going to seem wrong to you, so I generally don't torture myself by looking at other people's uh, interpretations of stuff that I've put a lot of work into i I know about these things because d c does send me still everything they publish and because I teach courses uh and the students are usually very, very knowledgeable about what's going on in comics. And I, I do a number of conventions a year. So I'm aware of them, but it it would be hard for me to, to read something like that for pleasure. It's fairly hard for me to look at the movies <laughs> for pleasure unless they are really well done.
0: And, and speaking of, of stuff that, that DC has published recently, they're doing a series called They're, they're Retroactive in which you are writing Green Lantern once again and also and I I found this interesting you're you're taking another swing at Wonder Woman
1: Uh, yeah (laughs) Uh, how could I refuse that assignment? (laughs) Wonder Woman is one of the great bots on my life and uh, there was a chance to maybe redeem myself a little bit so the story I wrote um, involves both versions uh the the, uh, the superhero costume and uh, the jumpsuited version. Uh, you can't win them all. i I mean, I'm amazed that DC, uh... decided to reprint not long sampling of every one of those stories. Uh, in paperback. I kind of wish that they had well, maybe not had me do an introduction, but had somebody do like five hundred words to explain. Uh, why the, uh, uh, I guess the stories are reasonably self explanatory, but um, a, a little historical context might not have been bad. Uh, but yeah, I, I finally got back to Wonder Woman with my head in my hand. You know, please forgive me, Diana, and let's try it once more. Gloria Steinem attacked the series in print, but she was generous enough not to mention me by name. I will always be grateful to Miss Steinem for that. <laughs> and, and you also
0: said you try not to watch the movies, but uh, a while back when I had first got in contact with you, uh, we were discussing the choice of Ryan Reynolds as as Hal Jordan, and now that the trailers and the movie is almost upon us and everything, how do you feel about it all now?
1: Uh, I... Don't know of anybody who has, at this point, seen a complete version of the movie. I, I talked to a movie guy about two weeks ago, and he said they were still working on some of the special effects. So they go, we're going right down to the wire. Oh, we will undoubtedly go see it. I don't think I'm going to be invited to a screening. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything of mine in it, as far as I can tell. Looks like they went back to... Uh, the thing that Julie Schwartz and, and John Broome came up with in, uh, 1959 or 1960, and that's good, solid science fiction, and with the inclusion of the alien Green Lanterns, it's, it's certainly a natural for the kind of science fiction movies we now have. Uh, so I have no reason to believe that it, it won't be, uh a good, solid, entertaining summer movie, and since they are not doing my version of Green Lantern, uh, I, I probably won't find it p- painful to watch.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. Uh, Denny, uh, when you, you talk about the, a sci-fi story, the, the way that society has been going with the internet disseminating information much faster than ever before and you know the average
1: person information and misinformation no
2: oh, that too but with like the average person being more attuned to scientific developments do you think that changes the way that science science fiction stories are told now
1: no i think that the 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 field has evolved enormously in the same way that comics have for the last 50 years uh, but if you believe what you read in the papers, this country isn't doing very well in science and math. And that should be worrying us because it has become a technological world. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've read interviews with scientists who said that reading Asimov and Heinlein and Bradbury uh, was influential in their choice of career so I, I don't know if it's going on the kind of science fiction that's good for movies though is uh, not the kind that would necessarily appeal to uh, somebody who's very detailed and technological and mathematically oriented it just makes for terrific a- entertainment
0: <laughs> okay as, as far as, um, as as approach to writing um, I would say, like, even though comics are more, quote-unquote, mainstream than recent years, um, a negative stigma about comics still being for kids still exists. Um, and I was wondering, what would you say to those people who are leery about getting into comics for that reason?
1: Oh, well, I mean, it, I mean uh, getting into you mean professionally? Well, uh, they wouldn't do that. It's, uh, I, I can't imagine anybody... Choosing to work in comics if they didn't already know about them and like them. As for other people, yeah, I, I would, I mean, the, the only answer to that is read a few. Actually, you may not like. there are people who don't like the farm. Something about the combination of image and copy in close juxtaposition, it, you know, they're not wired to like it, and that's fine. Uh... I have tried to like ballet and and failed. <laughs> uh, there are kinds of jazz that I just don't understand and I just don't get and other people love. Uh, but as far as the content goes, my God, there is such a wide variety of stuff available. And yeah, there's a lot of people who probably don't like a fantasy melodrama, which is what superheroes are. But there's, I really, uh, D.C. has just reprinted Stuck Rubber Baby by Howard Cruz. And that, uh, by any criterion, is a terrific coming-of-age story. Uh, just read right on that level, if you like that kind of thing, it's hard for me to believe you wouldn't like Howard's book. So, you know, try it, and if you don't like it, fine. Uh, I have i liked the medium of comics since I was about five years old. I married Mary Fran 22 years ago after having not seen her for 30 years and discovered that I gave her when we were like 17 a copy, a subscription to Mad, and she'd kept it up all those years and took instantly to the comic book world. Uh, I will go to hell for that. If for nothing else, I took this sweet, innocent, sane, Midwestern teacher and turned her into a raving fangirl uh, girl, <laughs> <Mea> culpa
2: <laughs> that's great
1: um,
0: as far as Greenland and Green Arrow goes uh, before we move on to something else uh, I was wondering there's been a lot of discussion as far as specifically Greenland and Green Arrow number 85 the, the whole um, speedy does drugs storyline the snowboards don't fly uh, and mm-hmm. I was wondering as far as the, the Comics Code Authority, and the issue that Marvel put out around the same time, what what was all going on at that time? Which came first, and what was your involvement of
1: all of it? Well, yeah, I was actually more involved in that than I, I might have expected to be. Um, there was a, uh, a meeting that the guy who was doing the Comics Code called, and I was asked to attend. I don't Exactly. know Why? I, I mean, but what, there was undoubtedly a reason. Um, they have had something to do with ACPA, the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which was still going on. And I was, one, uh, you know, one of the board members or whatever one is with organizations. Anyway, I went to meeting with Stan, and I, I maybe Carmine was there, uh, the Comics Code Authority guy, and Stan solution which was adopted by D.C. in later years, was simply to do that one issue with no uh, Comics Code seal of approval, just the one issue. Uh, We didn't anticipate any problems, and we had them. They asked Beale to change a shot in the uh, sequence. I think it's a three-panel sequence where Speedy is shooting up so that we don't show him actually putting the needle in his arm, because there was a provision in the Comics Code that said that you cannot show in detail how a crime is committed. Well, okay, shooting heroin into your vein was a crime, still is. Uh, it's a little hard for me to believe that a junkie would have to learn from a comic book how to do it, but... Uh, and then, you know, the, the topping irony was that it was on the cover. But not, in the inside, I think it probably took me five minutes to alter one drawing. And about that time, the mayor of New York City got involved and wrote a text piece for us. It was the Honorable John B. Lindsay, one of the last of the liberal Republicans. And is in my recollection, a pretty good mayor. And he did a text piece for us, well, for people... Who respect and believe in authority? If you have the mayor doing the, you know, putting a stamp of approval on it, it's pretty hard to argue with that.
2: I I would, I would agree. (laughs) Um, Switching, switching gears a little bit, Denny. um, You were the editor on Armageddon two thousand
1: and one. Yeah.
2: Now that was a story in which the ending had been discovered. Uh, somehow by by fans, and so DC went ahead and changed the ending and uh, made the the main villain a different character.
1: Yeah, I vaguely remember that.
2: Now, because of the the change in choice of character, um, you know, wh- why do you think well, wh- why would DC you know go do something like that as opposed to like nowadays they would just I
1: don't know. Occasionally, there were decisions made well, fairly often decisions made and While I had an astonishing amount of autonomy as the Batman editor, really they they only once in fifteen years got in my face about anything uh But in that case, I don't know. somebody maybe in the marketing department probably thought that it was necessary was it I don't know uh today it would probably be impossible to keep something like that a secret. Back then, it was a bit of a priority, but I don't remember the details if I ever knew them.
2: Okay, and then uh, one of the one of the very important questions I wanted to ask you was: uh, DC is they just released information that they're going to restart uh, all of their titles? Like fifty two titles are going to get new, new number one issues. Uh, yep, brand I in. saw that. What, what
1: do
2: you What do you think that means? You know, for the comic market in general, and to the fans?
1: Uh, Well, that's that's a a fairly complex question. Uh, I have heard, uh, I I mean, I'm way out of the loop. I I mean, the planet Saturn is closer to the the heart of the comic book (laughs) world than I am at this point. Uh, But I've heard that, to some degree, the editorial departments are beholden to the owners of comic book shops who are fans and it's true of fans that almost always they have a certain period where they think this was when comic books were being done right and as the medium passes that it seems wrong uh... so i don't know how they will feel about the wholesale revamping the question editorially is well Who's doing the revamping and how much reinvention are they going to do? Uh, when Julie and his freelancers reinvented much of the DC pantheon in 59 and 60, he really did reinvent those characters. Uh, Green Lantern is an example. He had been a character based on magic, uh, and a radio uh, announcer. And in the, uh, julie schwartz took the same basic idea the the empowered ring and got rid of any hint of aladdin which i'm told was part of the inspiration for the original gave it all a science fiction rationale and then while he was at it i uh, had gil kane design a very contemporary costume and that was after he'd done something with uh... the flash uh, also a genuine reinvention and then lots of other characters followed when there was an attempt about the same time I was yeah it was about 1985 or 86 to reinvent Superman the changes were not that sweeping they were kinda cosmetic minor things changed Uh, I don't know that anybody considers that a particular success I don't think it was a an embarrassing failure But it it was not as as sweeping and important as what Julie had done. So with this reinvention, the devil's going to be in the details. Who's doing it and how far are they prepared to go to rethink all of these characters? Uh, It'll be an interesting six months ahead of us.
0: (laughs) That's for sure. Chad? Well, uh... We, we, we've come up on your on your time limit here. Uh, if if you got time for one last kind of off the wall question, it's up to you. Sure. Uh, um, <laughs> actually, um, I'm a big Phantom Stranger fan, and I looked through your credits and saw that you wrote an issue or two. And I was wondering, how on earth does someone with even with a background in creative writing write for a character like the Phantom Stranger? <laughs>
1: Well, it, it was a job. It was pro- I mean, I was in the freelance writer business, and probably Joe Orlando asked me, may, maybe he had run into some kind of deadline problem with his regular guys. I don't know, but there was no reason for me not to do it. And I probably read some back issues and uh, thought about what this character was about. Uh, what kind of story I could tell within whatever limitations there were. There, well, there probably wasn't a great deal more to it than that. I, uh, I, I remember those stories very dimly, but I remember them pleasantly. There was absolutely nothing not to like about the gig. And
0: and and, and I, I know uh, Jim had one very important question he wanted to ask you about Batman. Oh. Go for it, Jim. Okay. <laughs> oh yes,
2: yeah. The perfect way to close. Uh, since you, you wrote the Batman Bible, uh, and uh, yep. what what do you think would be some of the funnier things that would make it into a Green Lantern Bible?
1: Oh, I'm not even that bad up on Green Lantern continuity currently, but the idea of a Bible, which is something I got from reading uh, the Star Trek TV show Bible that Stan Lee had a copy of, uh, Roddenberry wrote that, uh, you you assume that people coming onto the job know little or nothing about the character. So you give who he is, why he does what he does, who his love interests are, if any, and, uh, you know, anything about the city, the environment. In the case of Green Lantern, you'd ha- certainly have to put in lots about the Guardians. And you give that to your new writer, and, and turning loose. I mean, that, that's my editorial philosophy. Uh, define the limits of the ballpark, and then hire good people and let them alone. I don't believe in micromanagement. Uh, but it's it's part of, a, of the editor's job. It's part of what, what we got paid for to set the tone of the thing. These are the kind of stories we will tell. So, for example, with Batman, I put time travel, Stories and what I thought of as sci-fi light off limits because it it simply clashed with the conception of the character that we were creating. Yeah, got to you know pay attention to stuff like that. Uh, is he human? Is he superhuman? If he's superhuman, there's got to be limitations, or you're going to uh, have plot problems. So what are they? Spell them out. And, my Bible was originally about four pages long. By the time my freelancers and assistants got done augmenting it, it was 30-something pages. <laughs> and that was fine. As as the, the uh, Batman franchise developed, new characters were introduced. Uh, it was proper that they be included in the Bible for future writers, artists, whatever.
0: Well, we wanted to to really thank you for for taking the time out to do this interview i know you're a fairly modest guy um but just for me personally and and from a lot of fans out there um for good or for ill however they feel about uh, about the stories you may have told and and everybody's entitled to their own opinion but we all collectively respect what you did uh, back then and, and still do today um so we really appreciate all that you've brought to the mythology, especially mythology that we all
1: hold very close to our hearts. Well, happy to be a service. <laughs> thank <laughs> you very much. It was very nice to hear.
2: Denny, thank you very much. It's been an absolute honor. We very appreciate it.
1: Okay. Good luck with your podcast, and um, maybe we'll talk again. <laughs> thank, thank you, sir. Thank,
2: thank you, you sir.
0: And thus ended the first official interaction between the Lantern cast and Denny O'Neill. As you can tell, it was full of laughter and fantastic tidbits to savor. To this day, both Jim Ford and I consider it one of our fondest memories from the show thus far. One quote from Denny from this very interview that I still say to this day is, it's fun to learn, which resonates strongly with me as someone who struggled with grades in school, but discovered post-graduation, a passion for topics like sociology and philosophy and physics, and of course, my growing curiosity surrounding not only the medium of comic books, but the history of the industry itself. Which brings me to my third and final interaction with Denny O'Neill on the weekend of October 2nd through the 4th of 2014 at the Wizard World Austin Comic Convention in my hometown of Austin, Texas. This was the same convention at which I had my first and only in-person interaction and interview with Neil Adams, but with specific regards to Denny. The nonprofit organization Hero Initiative had a booth, and at that booth, the Hero Initiative brought Denny O'Neill to sign books for free. Of course, I brought several things. My copies of the novel Green Lantern Heroes quest that he had written, the DC Comics Guide to Writing Comics that he had written, my Green Lantern Green Arrow trade paperback, and, of course, my copy of Green Lantern Green Arrow number 85, the now historic cover of Speedy shooting heroin on the cover. At the table sat Denny in his turtleneck and vest, and beside him sat his wife, Mary Fran. Hero Initiative's booth was on a corner and sparsely decorated, unlike the two or three booth-long presents that Neil Adams commanded at conventions. It was quite literally blink-and-you-miss-it. I got my book signed and asked Hero Initiative's representatives if I could interview Denny following the panel featuring him, to take place later that day. They and Denny agreed, and I went about my business at the convention until it was time for Denny's panel. Denny's panel was moderated by Danny Fingeroth, if my memory serves me right. They spoke of the industry and Denny's time in it, and eventually the panel came to an end. But with no panel scheduled to occupy the room immediately afterwards, I patiently waited for everybody to leave the room. And then there I was, alone, in person, in a room face-to-face with one of my heroes, Denny O'Neill, and of course Mary Fran, who sat in the front row watching us like she was witnessing a private panel all her own, and sat across from the small round table at the front of the panel room, Denny and I began speaking.
4: So it's it's day two, uh, Wizard World Austin, and I'm sitting with Denny O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we've spoken with you before, but uh, the first episode of the, the spin-off podcast I did about Green Lantern and Green Arrow, we covered the history of the Comics Code Authority and kind of gave the listeners a feel mm-hmm. for uh, why the Green Lantern and Green Arrow series was so important. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you specifically was, when you hit the industry, and we talked about it briefly during the panel, when you hit the industry, how had comics
3: changed when, when you got in there? How did it affect your work? Well, okay. uh, comics were just in the process of becoming something they had never been. Mm-hmm. It was still pretty disreputable. Uh, I didn't notice. I woke up one day and suddenly I, I, I was a respectable writer <laughs> instead of this quasi-pornographic sneaky guy who perpetrated trash. Uh, That had changed. Stan Lee was in the middle of a huge creative explosion. Mm -hmm. He was making comics cool to read on college campuses. That was brand new. If you read comics, you were either a kid or somebody with not many reading skills. Mm. In the popular mind, that was never actually true, but that was the because of all the stuff that happened with uh, the Keith Hoffer committee investigating comics and Frederick Wortham's book exposing comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were pretty the, the medium was pretty disreputable and, and ver- almost extinct. Mm-hmm. Well something like 40 companies going into the end of World War Two, and they were down to fewer than ten. I've actually read the Ten Cent Plague, and yeah. he list all the, the people who never worked in comics again yeah, after that. that. Was, yeah, that's it. Uh, David did a, an extraordinary job yeah. of research. Well, S- Stan was becoming famous, and, and was doing PR, like having a Marvel night at Carnegie Hall, for example. Uh, so it was changing a little bit, but it was still a very low-end business. We didn't get paid very much. We, I, I work uh, on the board of Heroes Initiative, which is a, a an organization that grants money to comic book people who are destitute, and you'd be surprised how many, even now, there are. Uh, it was fine for me, because I was had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was drifting out of the service, involved in the peace movement and the civil rights movement, but not deeply involved. It wasn't absorbing my, my life. And along comes an, comes an opportunity to go to New York and write comics. Yeah. Well, who wouldn't do that uh, under those circumstances? Ah. And then, uh, as I said during the sp- panel that Danny and I just did, uh, I thought maybe a year, you know, I had been in New York when I was in the Navy and I got shore leave. And, uh, that's about as much as I knew about the city. But it was a chance to go, you know, see see Greenwich Village and it's all. New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so of course I'd do it and I never quite got back to the journalism <laughs> gig. After, uh, after a year, because life is what life is, I had a, uh, an infant to support. And uh, I discovered I had an aptitude for this odd little literary backwater, a strange kind of combination of short story and film and theater and even poetry in that the, the language has to be very compressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also discovered I kind of liked it. Yeah. Uh, it was a job. It was always a job. And one of the differences between the some of the younger guys and me is it was never my burning vocation, my, my burning desire. It was a job. In the last 15 years, it was the best job on earth. Mm-hmm. I could not ha- imagine a better, uh, anything that I could have done that would have been better for, than that. Because when I started, a comic book editor was a guy who lived in Queens took a subway into work, got two weeks off in the summer, didn't have an expense account. It was a kind of humdrum job. The last 15 years, we went all over the world, and we had lunch in the Senate dining room, and uh, got to places I would have never gotten to. would have never thought to go to Chile. We had a great week there. Argentina, a great week, but I would not have ever thought to visit those places. And then I woke up one day and found I was respectable. Uh, Danny was teaching comic book writing at New York University, and when he quit to write his book on Jews and comics, I inherited that job. And Danny and I have appeared at the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian, I have a son who's in the movie business. When I went out to write television uh, a long time ago, I did a show for CBS, and the agent involved said, don't have to talk about the comic book, you can talk about your short stories or your journalism, soft pedal a comic book thing, mm-hmm. even though I was going out to work on a show that was pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, now my son says any connection with comic books will open the door. Not necessarily get you the job, but, yeah. but you'll 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 get the appointment with the producer. Yeah, that's crazy. Now fast forward
4: a few years, Julie comes to you and says Green Lantern's dying, and I need you to save him, just like you were doing with Batman. It's um, when when he comes to you and says save Green Lantern. Okay, it's a chance to work on Green Lantern. What made you go? not only am I going to write stories about Green Lantern, I'm taking him out of space, and we're going to cross the country, hard-traveling hero style, and deal
3: with these social issues. Well, I believed in the social issues, and I guess I was kind of looking for ways to make a contribution. I had gone the March on Washington, and when we were still in St. Louis, we were around the civil rights movement a little bit. And I had done two comic book stories, one at Charlton when something that Dick was going to publish fell through at the last minute. There was a legal entanglement. They discovered they didn't have the rights to it. Hmm. So he said, you know, call me up and said, you know, can you give me 20 pages by Thursday? And I about anything. So I wrote, uh, I took that as an opportunity to write a story with a very gentle anti-war message. And when I was working for Julie on the Justice League, I did a story about that river in Ohio that caught fire, an environmentally themed story. So Julie said, oh, do something with Green Lantern, and it occurred to me that this was my chance. I'm not a charismatic, fiery young leader, right. but I'm a guy who writes comic books. Mm-hmm. And this guy, this editor, whom by that time I completely trusted, uh, is, ask, is giving me carte blanche. Mm-hmm. So I did that first story uh, thinking that Gil Kane would do the art. Neil has a kind of long story about he got involved, but basically it's that he wanted to do Green Lantern, and this was his chance too. Right. And um, voila, suddenly we were getting invited places and there were stories in the, in the press and uh, we, we were tasting respectability for the first time. Yeah. Mixed feelings about that, but uh, it ran its course and if we had kept going, I'm not sure the stuff would have held up from my end on quality. Yeah. Because I had done everything I was genuinely concerned about as a, a husband and a father and a citizen. And one thing that I was not genuinely concerned about, an absolutely egregiously bad story that I should not have written. But uh, we had kind of covered the territory by then. Of, of, the, of the social issues at the time. Yeah. 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 Everything I was genuinely concerned about, I got a story out of.
4: And you got a story, of two-issue, because at the time it was a single issue per issue, a single comic issue per social issue, and then you hit drugs, and it was two issues. Yeah. And uh, it, it it followed the the Harry Osborn doing pills storyline, which Stan printed without the code,
3: uh, and then the, the mayor of New York, right? came to you. John V. Lindsay. Yeah. He didn't come to us. I didn't know how, don't know how that happened. I saw that comic book several times today, so it it did happen. But, yeah, Stan has a, an interesting story about his drug thing. Uh, what happened, well, among other things, was that a bunch of the, the Comics Code called Stan and maybe Carmine and me and a few other people in to sort of arbitrate this. And what Stan decided to do was to, uh, with the uh, on the advice as he tells it of his boss, Martin Goodman, or with the consent of Martin Goodman, was to run it without the code seal. Later on, that was done several other times. What we decided to do, or our bosses, was to... Follow the code. So okay, there was a provision in the code that says you cannot show in detail how a crime is committed. We had a shot in there, or a Speedy shoots a uh, puts a spike in his arm. Technically, that's showing how a junkie commits the crime of illegal drug use. Right. Uh, I think, and that was on the cover. I think you Neil. Know, Altered the panel a little bitty bit. Yeah, uh, it's also like below the table or something like that. Yeah, that yeah. was it. So you technically, I mean, it was an absolutely idiotic, uh, it, it's what rules can do when they're badly interpreted. Right. I never had any, I mean, my kind of liberal instincts and my cherishing of the First Amendment. Bristled at the idea of any kind of censorship, right. but I'm willing to put up with it if you tell me what the rules are. Right, tell me exactly what you want me to do, and I will. I will push the envelope, but I won't exceed it. Mm-hmm. But we, the the code was not administered evenly, shall we say? Right. That's okay. I mean, the story works. We got our point across. It it did not hurt the narrative. So, And then, of course, uh, I, don't, I mean,
4: you. I know you don't keep up too much, but I know uh, uh, Speedy would go on to lose an arm and go insane. And Poor bastard north. had a yeah. terrible time. Yeah. yeah, lost his kid and everything. Yeah. Um, and then you covered, you know, overpopulation and stuff. And I spoke with Neil yesterday, and he told me that he wasn't convinced that overpopulation was an issue at the time. But, uh, and then he told me an interesting story I'd never heard before. When you guys invented John Stewart, Julie wanted to call him Lincoln Washington? Yeah, th-
3: I've heard Neil tell that story. I don't remember, but I don't doubt it. Right. Uh, what I was talking about before, you until you have a reason to question something you assume to be right, you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why things like busing, there's a part of me that doesn't like that, but it's absolutely true it is in the military. If you've never met a black man and you're forced to shower and to fight and to live with him, you realize he's basically no different than you. Right. But you need the contact mm-hmm. to get past what you've always had, you've never had any reason to doubt was true. Right. Yeah, uh, misperceived notions or whatever. Our friend Will Eisner took some grief for ebony. Mm -hmm. uh, Was a kind of caricatured black kid. He grew up in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. When he went into the army, he came out and almost immediately introduced Sammy. And so, you know, he he kind of got Ebony off stage. Mm-hmm. But he he was doing what he knew to do. And when he found out that that wasn't right, he changed. That's all you can ever ask of anybody. Right. And, I'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tie of
4: dovetail this, this question into our next topic. But you say you don't like writing godlike characters like Superman, uh, Captain Adam, so on and so forth. But in hard traveling heroes, you threw a
3: guardian in with them, which was essentially a godlike being. Well, he was a godlike being that didn't have much in the way of physical powers. Right. And what that was, I, I don't know why, we came up with that. Part of it was road stories, and particularly because of uh, Easy Rider. But going back to Huck Finn, road road stories are deep in our culture. Right. That undoubtedly, and on the road, by, I was, was heavily, uh, I had been knocked out by Kerouac when I first read him as a very young guy. So that was all in there, but if you look at that in another way, it's the angel coming down from heaven to find out what human beings are really about. Right. He, they are godlike in terms of wisdom, except that, uh, the subtext of that was, they're not really. Yeah. Everybody has always including them that they are. Yeah. Because it's never been questioned. But they're really not all that smart. They're just real old. Real old people, as that beautiful woman and myself can attest. <laughs> Trying to get fixed in our ways, you know, and we don't like to change our- we ain't gonna go with all this new stuff. <laughs> so that was that guy. It was the education of a an alien mm-hmm. to teach him what human being was really about it's one of the aspects of the story that i kind of like yeah it's it's a good it's a good perspective
4: all right well i wanted to thank you for taking the time out to speak with me it's been great and uh thank you for everything you've ever done for comics green lantern whatever it may be
3: well happy to be in service
0: when that interview ended i stood up and shook his hand thanking him again for his time I turned to Mary Fran and asked her if she wouldn't mind taking a photo of myself and Denny on my smartphone. I demonstrated how to do it, handed it to her, and posed with Denny. She seemed to be struggling, so I demoed it again and stepped back into our pose. After a moment or two, I grabbed the phone back from her and thanked her before leaving the panel room, and we went our separate ways. She never actually took the photo then 74 and three years before her passing she was so accommodating and so sweet I didn't have the heart to keep forcing the situation until I got my photo so I never did get a photo with Denny O'Neill and I didn't see him again by the time he passed on two years ago I didn't work with him in any comic book bullpens I never did get to do that documentary with him I weirdly considered him a friend, having only spoken to him three times. I'm sure if I saw him again, he wouldn't have remembered me, just another in a sea of interviews over a distinguished career. And there are far more people personally familiar with him who are far better tasked to offer something like this in his memory. But he was one of my industry heroes. And I got to be alone, one-on-one, talking with Denny O'Neill. And I got to get several signatures in person from Denny O'Neill. And I got to help facilitate one of this show's favorite moments with Denny O'Neill. And I got to have a private phone conversation direct from his home as the sun went down with Denny O'Neill. And with that, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Denny himself. Make me laugh, make me cry. Tell me my place in the world. Lift me out of my skin and place me in another. Show me places I have never visited and carry me to the ends of time and space. Give me my demons' names and help me to confront them. Demonstrate for me possibilities I've never thought of and present me with heroes who will give me courage and hope. Ease my sorrows and increase my joy. Teach me compassion. Entertain and enchant and enlighten me. Tell me a story. You can find the LanternCast on Facebook and Twitter or by searching hashtag GLCast. If you'd like to contact the show, you can do so via email at lanterncast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail by dialing 708-LANTERN, that is 708-LANTERN, and let us know what you think. You can visit our website at lanterncast.com. You can find the show on podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. And if you'd like to join the conversation over on our Discord, please email us and ask for the link. Good night, everybody.